The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Uh, This morning we're going to continue our study in this little letter of 1 John Now, as I've said over and over, unlike the Gospel of John that was written for the purpose of bringing people to faith in Christ, this epistle is written to those who have already trusted Christ, instructing them how to have fellowship with Yeshua and the Father. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he writes, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And this is a hint of purpose clause. The purpose is so that you'll have fellowship. The main theme of this epistle is fellowship with Yahweh. And we enjoy this fellowship, he tells us, as we walk in the light. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, he says, then we have fellowship with one another. So the consequences of walking in the light is that we have fellowship with each other. Now, who is the one another here? Is it that we have fellowship with God or with other Christians? Yes, thank you. God is in the light, so when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with Him. And two Christians who are in a right relationship with God will also naturally be in a right relationship with each other. As people walk in the light of God, they have fellowship with one another. So if you're in fellowship with God, you're also in fellowship with other believers who are in fellowship with God. Now, the passage that we're going to begin today can be broken down into two sections. The first section would be verses 18 and 19, in which the author speaks of the coming antichrists and identifies them as the cessationists. And then verses 20 through 27, where he warns his readers about the cessationists' attempt to deceive them, and he seeks to arm them against it. Now, many interpreters see a new section beginning here at 18, and and I see that too, that we're starting a new section. Although there are differences of opinion as to whether this is merely a new section or whether it marks a new major part of the letter. And this is important, because if you remember in verse 17, it says that the world and its desires are passing away. Right? And I said that I don't see that as eschatological. Many people do, I don't see that as eschatological. But now we get to verse 18, and I see that as eschatological. And you say, well, how can that be different? Well, we're starting a new section here. And I think this section is going to deal with eschatology. Now, this is an important section. The author turns from encouragement that he's been giving and exhortation to warning. Now he's going to warn them. In verse 18, he says, Children, it's the last hour, as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now... Many antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Now the Greek for emphasis always places the things that are important at the beginning of the sentence. That emphasizes them. And in the Greek here it says, Children, last hour it is. It's the last hour. Now John is saying that the time in which they live which is around A.D. 65. Okay, you understand that. John is not really writing to us. He didn't know us. He didn't know we were going to read this. You know, he never contemplated any of that stuff. He's writing to 
These people, it's a circular letter to go out many churches in the first century, but he is saying that the time in which they live, AD 65 around there, is described as the last hour. Eschatos horah. Now, this expression, the last hour, eschatos horah, is found only here in the New Testament. It's identified twice, the beginning and the end of the verse. He says, it's the last hour. He closes, it's the last hour. What is John talking about? It's the last hour of what? Okay, now we got to try to figure this out because this is important. Let me tell you something. Almost anybody that's not a preterist, or let's say everybody that's not a preterist, is confused on what this hour is. Okay? Very confused. I'm going to give you a lot of different other people's opinion to see where they're standing on this. But first of all, we're dealing with Lazarus here is writing this epistle. He also wrote the Gospel, so maybe we can get some hints from the Gospel. So we go back to the Gospel. In the Gospel of John, he uses the word horah, hour, in both a literal sense of a portion of a day and also of a certain period of time. We see this in John 2.4. He says, And Yeshua said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Which hour is he talking about? What did he mean by this? Well, most scholars will agree here that the fourth gospel, in the fourth gospel, the reference to Yeshua's hour most often points to the hour of Christ's passion and death on the cross. And we see that in chapter 12, verse 23. Yeshua answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now we remember from the study of the Gospel of John, Christ is glorified in His death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? So this is talking about that. In John's Gospel, the expression, my hour on the lips of the Lord is a reference to the cross. Alright? So he, he uses hour in that sense. But speaking of the resurrection of the dead in the Gospel, he said this in 528. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. This is the resurrection. Now, the resurrection was not there yet. Okay? But he said it's coming. It was, when's it going to happen? Well, he tells us later it's going to happen on the last day. John 6, 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The Lord says this in the Gospel five times. He's going to raise Him up on the last day. Five times He says that. Once He says... Judgment is going to happen on the last day. So we got resurrection, we got judgment, which we know happened at the second coming. So the second coming, resurrection, judgment, they all go together. So we see here that there's a last day. That last day has hours in it, and guess what it also has? A last hour. So the last hour is the last hour of the last day. Like the term last days, you're familiar with that, end times, last hour is one of those phrases that's talking about the second coming. Now the last hour closes a succession of hours. It's the end of an expiring day. And John, you know, seems to pinpoint this more than any of the other authors. This is it. It's the last hour. Now the question we need to seek to answer today is when are the last days or end times and when is the last hour? 
Now, the last hour is obviously the end of the last days or end of the end time. So when is this going to happen? When did the last day start? Almost everybody's in agreement with that. Almost. When did they end? Almost everybody's in agreement on that, but they're just all wrong. Okay. <laughs> These are important questions that really have to be answered if we're going to understand when the last hour was. What is John talking about? Well, hopefully the study will answer some of those questions. Most Christians today would probably say that we, 21st century American Christians, are living in the last days. You agree with that? Most everybody says, we're in the last days. We're in the end times. Most of these guys would say, we're in the last hour. This is a commonly held view. Stephen Cole, who has a THM from Dallas Theological Seminary, a master's degree in theology, writes this. John is calling the entire period between Jesus' ascension and his return as the last hour. That's exactly what I said. That is one long hour. Because so far it's been 2,000 years. So he says this period between the ascension, when the Lord left and the return, which he believes hasn't happened yet, is the last hour. He says no one knows how long this period will last. I guess not. But the phrase the last hour implies a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency that's lasted for 2,000 years. Hang on to that, all right? And that Jesus may come at any moment. Jesus concludes His teaching on the end times with this application to the wise here. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. See, and that's, they, they all like to throw that in. Well, we don't know. We just don't know when it's going to come. Yeah, we do. The Lord was very specific. Dr. Thomas L. Constable writes this, In the drama of human history, all of John's readers, including ourselves, play our part in the last act. So, they, John's audience did, we do, it's still going on. Throughout the New Testament, the writers regarded the present inter-advent age, after the Incarnation, and before the Lord's return for His own, as the last hour. Again, see, another one. He sees, John says, it's the last hour, and they go, that's for 2,000 years. That's a long, long hour. He doesn't see any difference between the last days and the last hour. From the incarnation to today, so far, it's the last hour. David Legg writes this. It is the last hour. There's a great debate regarding what this period of time may be. And I'm not entering into it tonight. Save to say that I believe that the last hour, the last time that is spoken of here is the time between the first coming and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this, this whole 2,000 year period is an hour long. All right, He says, more specifically, the time between Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, and the second coming of our Lord. That's the hour that John's talking about. All right. So you wonder, is there any last days? Does that make any sense? Last hour of the last day? It's, just, it's not specifying anything, I guess. S.L. Johnson writes this. He's describing it as a last hour. And what he is simply saying is that this whole age between the first coming and the second coming might be called 
the last time. And to say it is the last hour is to describe the times. These times have stretched now for 1,900 years. So he does no problem seeing an hour lasting a whole long time. All right, now watch this. Raymond Brown, who was a renowned Catholic Johannian scholar, okay, he rejects this explanation of the phrase which holds that the entire entirety of the Christian age is referred to as the last days or the last hour. He says that doesn't make any sense. Instead, Brown states this. The epistolatory author would scarcely need to make an urgent announcement of such a general truth. I agree. Why say it's the last hour? Oh, we got, don't worry, we've got 2,000 years for this hour, though. You know, why make that? Since he has just said that the world is passing away, and since the presence of the Antichrist is cited as a sign of the end, and since the coming of Christ is mentioned in 228, there can be little doubt that the author thought the end was coming soon. Good job, Brown. You got that. Now watch. Hang on. In his time, he was not alone in that view. We got that, right? But, like every other Christian who stated it then or since, he was wrong. Who's he saying is wrong here? John! Right? The Holy Spirit. Somebody messed up. He thought it was the end. He thought the end was coming soon, and he was wrong. Brown is saying Lazarus was wrong, and you know what that does? He is saying he's, it, it's an attack on inspiration. We can't trust the Bible. They, these guys were confused. See, they cannot get around the fact that the New Testament writers had an urgency about the second coming. It was close. They can't get around that, so they say, well, they screwed up. And that doesn't bother them. It doesn't bother them to say that. John Piper writes this. Verse 18 begins, Children, it's the last hour. That was 2,000 years ago. Yeah, it sure was. What? But the message of the New Testament is when Christ came, we entered the last days, and nobody but God knows how long they will last. So, same thing. He's saying the same thing. We're in the last days. It's stretching from the incarnation until today. And I couldn't go without quoting my favorite John MacArthur. Okay? The last times, he says, the last hour began when Jesus arrived. Okay? Now, like I said, most people go along with that. They agree with that. He's talking here about the incarnation. You know, that's when the last days started. He goes on to say this. There's only two ages outlined for us in the New Testament. He's right there. There's the present age and the age to come. He's right there. The present age is an evil age. That's what Galatians 1.4 says, right? Okay, we're, we're, we're in track so far, right? Present age is an evil age, but to him, what's the present age? Paul characterizes it as evil. We're in it. All of humanity has been in it since the fall. So, the age that the Lord came, He died, and we're still in the present evil age. The church age, the day in which we live, is an evil age, He says. So according to all these men, all of us here today are living in the last hour. Which really doesn't mean much because it's been 2,000 years. So that's a, I don't know how, the last minute, maybe the last second, I don't know how we narrow this down, okay? John told his readers 2,000 years ago it was the last hour, and today it's still the last hour. Long, long hour. 
Well, let's examine the Bible, okay? Because this is a controversial subject today. Like I said, everything that happens today in the newspaper, earthquake, war, famine, it's end times. It's the last time. The Lord's coming any minute. And people live that way. They don't understand what the Bible says. The Bible talks a lot about this, and we can understand it if we spend time looking at the Scripture. I think everyone would agree the last days began by the time Christ came into the world. Like I said, most of these guys understood that. Those were the last days. And you don't have to you know, be smart to figure that out because Hebrews says it. Look at Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago, God wanted to speak to us. He spoke to the prophets, right? Now what? But in the last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. Okay, so guess what happens when the sun comes? We're in the last days. He says that they, first century Christians, were living in the last days. When the sun started to speak, we're in the last days. Alright? That should be clear. Most Christians would agree the last days began around the time of Christ. The big debate comes on when did they end. And most would say they have not ended. We're still in them. Which, when you just think about it, it's like, Really? What are they the last days of? Because they sure lasted a long time, right? Our study today hopefully will answer those questions. Now, in order to understand the term last days, let's look at how the phrase was originally used in the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay? See, this is a little, a little trick for biblical interpretation. If you want to understand the New Testament, go back and find out what the, the writers said earlier. Because see, the New Testament writers got all their information from the Old Testament writers, okay? From the Tanakh. That's where they get their ideas from. That's where they get their terms from. They're building on that. It doesn't just start. And most people have never read their Old Testament. So they're like, I don't have a clue what it's talking about. And that's why we get confused, all right? So let's go back. Let's, let's go back to Genesis and see if we can understand what the last days are. Genesis 49.1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. That is a lousy translation. Okay, it is. Not good at all. Young's translates it as the latter end of the days. King James does a better job. It says in the last days. Let me tell you what's going to happen to you in the last days. The complete Jewish Bible has this. Then Yaakov called for his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, and I will tell you what will happen to you in the Akrit Hayamim. Okay, now... The Akrit Hayamim in Hebrew, is Hebrew for last days. Alright, the way it reads in ESV, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow and next week. You know, the days to come, right? That's, that doesn't really tell us anything. The last days, last days of what? Okay, now consider who he's talking to here. The phrase last days is primarily addressed to Israel, alright? Jacob is talking to his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And, you know, that's the idea of the 12. You know, get, we get this thinking in our mind. Okay, 12, that's Israel. And he pronounces the general evil that's going to come upon them. So clearly Israel's the subject of the last days. And the last days concern Israel. Now that's where we miss it so much. Okay, we, the last days, and we're thinking our last days, the last days of the planet, last days of whatever. All right? Numbers 24, 13, and 14 says, 
If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of Yahweh to do either good or bad of my own will. What Yahweh speaks, that will I speak. And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Now here again, the vision is concerning the Jews. It was concerning what would happen to Israel, His people, in the last days. <coughs> Isaiah predicts these last days as well. In Isaiah 2, 1 and 2, he says, The word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established in the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and the nations will flow into it. Alright, the latter days. This vision is concerning Judah and Jerusalem, he says. It's about Judah. It's about Jerusalem. It's speaking of the new covenant that is going to be inaugurated in the last days. Now, nowhere is the phrase last days used to refer to physical earth. Okay, there's no last days of this earth, according to the Bible. It refers to the last days of a people, the last days of a nation, which is Israel, God's people. Now Moses confirms that the last days of the Jews would be characterized by devastation and their ultimate scattering. Because they just didn't listen, okay? They constantly disobeyed the Lord. Deuteronomy 4.27 And Yahweh will scatter you, the Jews, among the peoples. And you will be left few in number among the nations where Yahweh will drive you. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in your latter days, you will return to Yahweh, your God, and obey His voice. Okay, this is talking about what's going to happen in the latter days. Now, he continues... This toward the end of the book, right? The end of the book in chapter 31, verse 29. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I've commanded you. That's got to be sad for Moses. He's like, I know you people are just rotten to the core, all right? And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. All right, the days that are to come. The, the complete Jewish Bible here has a Crete Hayamim. So Moses says, evil's going to befall you in the latter days. He was leading this company of Jews. There is no reference to Gentiles being the subject of any of the last days. It's about Israel. Jeremiah 23.16 says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy, you, prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. These are false prophets. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of Yahweh. They say continually to those who despise the word of Yahweh, it shall be well with you. Don't worry, just go ahead. Everything's going to be okay. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Don't worry, God's not going to punish you. He's not mad at you. Just go do what you want to do. For who among them has stood in the council of Yahweh? This is Yahweh's heavenly council. And the prophets had insight into this council because they got word from the Lord. But said these, he's saying these prophets, they didn't stand in the council. Okay, They don't know what's going on. They didn't see or hear His word 
or who has paid attention to His word and listened? Behold, the storm of Yahweh. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of Yahweh will not turn back until He has executed and accomplished the intents of His heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. So he says, you guys don't get it now, but you will in the latter days. Now, throughout the book of Jeremiah, God condemns the Jewish false prophets. Here, Jeremiah predicts that when these latter days come, the people of God will understand what he's about to do to the nation in destroying it and punishing it for its wickedness. God, through Ezekiel, warns Israel, my people, he says, of the destruction by the hand of foreign nations. Ezekiel 38, 16. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land. Okay, latter days, bring it against the land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. He's going to destroy them in the latter days. Now, Michael the archangel spoke to Daniel associating the latter days with Daniel's people. Daniel 10, 14 and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is yet for days to come. Your people is referring to Israel. They're Daniel's people. And the time of this warning is about 536 B.C. He says that the vision of what's going to happen to Israel in the latter days is a long way off. The vision is for days yet to come. In other words, it's off. It's a ways away. So in Daniel's time, the last days were a long way off. They hadn't come yet. We know that. They didn't come until the Lord showed up. All right? Hosea talks about how the elect remnant will turn to God in the last days. In Hosea 3 5, he says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to Yahweh and to his goodness in the latter days. Finally, in Micah, the prophet states that the last days involve the destruction of physical Israel and the establishment of of true Israel. Micah 3.12 Therefore, because you, Zion, shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Okay, Jerusalem's going to get destroyed. Alright? It shall become a heap of ruins. That doesn't sound good, right? For Jerusalem. But look at what he says in 4.1. It shall come to pass in the latter day that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow into it. So in Micah, this latter days, people are flowing into the mountain of God, which is His dwelling place. But He said back in 3.12, Jerusalem's going to become a heap. So which is it? Is it going to be a heap, or is it going to be a place where everyone's going to? Well, in order to understand what he's saying here, here's a key. And here's where most people miss this. You have to understand there are two Israels. There is physical, national Israel who were God's people. And then there is true, spiritual Israel that God calls out of that hardened people to be His people, a remnant. We see this in Romans 9.6. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. People ask questions. God, you promised all these things to Israel, and look it! Israel's being destroyed. They're a mess. Has the Word of God failed? Have your promises fell short? He says, no. 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What? What's that mean? Well, it means the descendants from Israel, national Israel, they're born Israelites, right? And not all of them belong to Israel. I thought that was what made them Israelites. They're physical Israelites. They're not true Israelites. See, most of Israel was faithless. Only a remnant was redeemed. They were the true Israel. So when God talks in the Word of God about destroying Israel, and then you hear about Him raising up Israel, it's spiritual Israel that's raised. National Israel is destroyed. Those of faith made up the remnant. Look at John 1, uh, 47. Yeshua saw Nathanael coming toward Him, and He said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no guile. In other words, this is a true Israelite. He's not just simply an outward one. He's a true Israelite. See, Israel is not a term like Ammon or Moab or Greece or Rome. Israel cannot be defined in terms of physical descent or understood simply on the human side. It is created not by blood, not by soil. Israel is created by the promise of God. Most people today hold out a hope for future national Israel because they don't understand this. Romans 9.6 clearly teaches there's two Israels. There's the ethnic, physical, national Israel, and there's true spiritual Israel, God's chosen people. Look at Galatians 3. This chapter really makes this clear, I think. Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. A son of Abraham is what? An Israelite, right? Who's true Israelites? Those of faith. It's not about your birth, who your daddy was. It's who you trust in. Those of faith are children of Abraham. Now, he goes on to say, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If If you believe in Christ, you're blessed along with Abraham. What was the blessing of Abraham? Look at Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham. God made some promises to Abraham. We know that. All right, go back. Genesis 15. Look it up. Promises made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, it does not say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who's Christ. So who's the promise made to? Abraham and... Christ. You've got to see that. Here's the promise. God made a promise to Abraham and Abraham's offspring who was Christ. Those were the promise to Abraham and his singular seed. We only get in on the blessing by our relationship to Christ. Okay? Galatians 3.29 If you are Christ, by faith, right? You're Abraham's offspring. And look, You're an heir according to the promise. What promise? Abraham's offspring, Abraham and his offspring. All right? That offspring is Christ. And because you're Christ, you're Abraham's child. You inherit the promises he made to Abraham and Christ. It is evident, to me at least, that physical Israel was the main subject involved in the text dealing with last days. And I hope you see that the last days are about physical Israel. That's it. The nation Israel, listen to me, has not existed 
for 2,000 years. You say, oh, no, no, there's people over there right now. National Israel was destroyed in AD 70. God was done with that. He was done with them. He had promised destruction. You go back to Deuteronomy 28. Read the blessings and the cursings. If you don't obey, here's what happened. That happened in AD 70. God said, I'm done. He, he destroyed the temple. He destroyed the priesthood. He destroyed all the genealogical records so you could never have a priest again. He wiped it all out. That was the end of Israel. There is no Israelites today. Those in the Middle East who say they are Israelites have no right to do so. They're not. And many people still consider the Jewish people as a race. Oh no, they're a race. You know, they, all these promises are still theirs. After the destruction of Jerusalem, the nation Israel after the flesh was scattered throughout the earth. They lost their tribal relations. And the scattering was made immutable due to the fact that, as I said, the genealogical records were destroyed. You can't have a temple without a priesthood. You can't have a priesthood without genealogical records. So you can't do it. You know, people today talk about, oh, they're breeding red heifers. Well, big deal. What are they going to do with them? They don't have a priest to sacrifice them. They don't have a priest to do anything with the red heifers, okay? The simple fact is there's no existing Jewish race today. Now, consider the following quotation from the Encyclopedia Britannica, 1973. They probably couldn't say this today in our politically correct environment, but look what it says. The Jews as a race. The findings of physical anthropology show that contrary to popular view, there is no Jewish race. Anthropornetic measurements of Jewish groups in many parts of the world indicate that they differ greatly from one another with respect to all the important physical characteristics. In other words, anthropologists say there is no race, they're not, they're not a specific race of people. They've all been intermarried, inbred, mixed up, no Jewish race. Today, being a Jew simply means that you hold to the Judaistic religion, whatever it is, the watered-down version from the Bible, because it doesn't resemble biblical Judaism at all. No sacrifices, they don't do anything that God demanded. Because the sacrifices come. It's kind of stupid to point to something that's already here, all right? So being a Jew has nothing to do with race. And, you know, we, we know this because there's a lot of famous people that are Jews, that, like Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah, he's Jewish, right? Elizabeth Taylor, Tom Arnold. They've been Jews by conversion to this religion of Judaism that has nothing to do with God. Because God's done with those people. There's no Jewish race. There's no Jewish nation today. God put an end to Judaism. The last days were the last days of Israel. The last days ended when Israel ended, which was A.D. 70 when God destroyed the city and the temple and dispersed them all over the world. All right, so let's move into the New Testament and see if we can uh, verify these truths by the New Testament. In the book of Acts, we find a profound statement made by Peter, who was a Jew, to a multitude of Jews out of every nation. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He says, what you see happening is what Joel said would happen. 
And here's what Joel said. And in the last days it shall be. So he says, this is what Joel said, what happened in the last days. So guess what Peter's saying? We're in the last days. Right? That I will pour out my spirit on the all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, let's ask a couple questions here. Who's Peter talking to? Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Okay? That's who he's talking to. That's really clear. When did he say this? First century. All right? He said, he's talking in the first century, and he explicitly says, this is what was uttered through Joel. This is what Joel said would happen in the last days. Then he explains that what this multitude of Jews was experiencing was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. He's telling them, first century Jews, guys, you're in the last days now. This is it. Beyond this, he goes on to describe what would take place during the last days. He goes, I'll show you wonders in the heavens above, signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes and great and magnificent day. Now, notice how what he is saying here about all this blood and smoke and fire is co- corresponds to what Yeshua said in Matthew 24. Now, we're familiar with Matthew 24 and what's going on here. We've been talking a little bit about it. He says, immediately after tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. He spoke these words in answer to the disciples' questions about the end of the age and when it would come. Remember, you know, Matthew 21, he goes, you know, they're leaving the temple, and you should, they begin to point out the buildings. Look, these buildings are incredible, aren't they, Lord? Look at how magnificent these buildings are. And he says, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another. You, you're, they're admiring him, and he says, it's going to be rubble, trash. All right? And he sits down on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him and say, tell us when. Well, these things, they couldn't believe it. How can that happen? How can this thing be destroyed? That's impossible. When will this be? Well, their question is twofold. First, they ask, when will it be that these things refers to the temple's destruction? They want to know when. I mean, that's what Yeshua just got done talking about. And about one stone not being left. That makes sense. That's what they're asking. When, when will this temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming into the age? See, they connected the destruction of the temple the end of the age, not the end of the world, His coming, sign of His coming, the end of the age. They connected to all these things, alright? When is it going to happen? Well, we get down further in the chapter and He says, truly I say to you, you, who's the you here? The disciples who he's talking to, right? The people sitting there around him, the people listening to him. You ever seen the meme of this? They got Yeshua sitting on a rock, and all the disciples sitting there, and he's teaching them. And you know, one of the disciples says, "He goes, are you mean to tell us that all this stuff you're telling us has nothing to do with us, but it's for some generation, two thousand years in the future?" You think they ever thought that? No, it's to them. Okay. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All what things? All the things I've just talked about, including the destruction of the temple, the stars falling from heaven. All this stuff's going to happen before this generation 
He uses the near demonstrative. This, the one I'm talking to. Not that generation. If he just said that generation, then you'd say, which one? He says this one, they know. Ganea is the word here. It means contemporaries. A biblical generation was about 40 years. So Yeshua is saying that everything I just told you about will happen within 40 years. Guess how long it was to AD 70? 40 years. Wow, how did he get that right? How did he know that? His coming is going to take place within 40 years. But see, and it's just so clear, I think. Stephen J. Cole writes this. Some have said that John mistakenly thought that Jesus would return in his lifetime. John did mistakenly think that, okay? Not mistakenly, but he did think that. Now watch what he says. Such a view undermines the divine inspiration. No, no, it doesn't. What, the, what undermines inspiration is when you say John didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't mean it. If you buy into it, he says, you cannot trust anything that they wrote. You know, his presupposition here, it hasn't happened. So therefore, John never meant that. That would destroy Scripture. You become the judge of Scripture according to what strikes you as true. John mistakenly thought. No, he didn't. This view also impugns the intelligence of the apostles. How stupid were they if they would have thought that? And here's why. Now see, watch this. This is tricky, okay? In other words, they would have never believed this because John had heard Jesus say that no one knows the hour of his coming. See, so they wouldn't have said he's coming soon. They knew they didn't know when it was going to be. It's not reasonable to accuse him of being mistaken about the time of the second coming. See, he knew they didn't have a clue. Listen, John did think Yeshua would come in his lifetime because Yeshua taught him that he would. He said this generation, and he knew what he meant, okay? Ray Stedman writes, John, of course, was present when our Lord himself said to his own disciples, speaking of his coming, of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son. So, see, this is a big deal. They, they hang on to verses like this. The Lord said no one knows. Is that what he said? No. It says they didn't know the day or the hour. It's interesting that he compares the coming and to birth pains. The idea of a woman in birth, giving birth pains. Now, when a woman is pregnant, would you say, we don't know the day or the hour? We don't, right? Do we have a pretty good idea, though, it's going to be in nine months? Okay, and that's what he says. This generation, within 40 years, what day, what hour? We're not giving you that information, okay? But within the nine months, okay, within the 40 years, this is going to happen. But see, they camp on this. No one knows the day or the hour. Yes, but he told us specifically being a generation, and he said it would be soon, quickly, shortly. Some of you standing here, he said all those things. Zane Hodges says this on the last hour. He writes, needless to say, this claim has been derided by unbelievers. In other words, the, the idea that there was only an hour left, you know, a short time, has been, and yet another proof that though the early Christians expected the second coming in their own lifetime, history now shows they were wrong. See, these guys can't get over the fact that the disciples did think they were coming in their lifetime. You know why they thought that? Because Yeshua taught them that. And so when they go back and say these disciples messed up, well, no, their teacher messed up. 
And you're talking about Christ, so you just destroyed Bible, you destroyed deity, you destroy everything. You are what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come, Antichrist. Okay? Zane goes on to say, God experiences time differently than man does. Since with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. Boy, I have heard that verse quoted so many times. Ad infinitum, ad nauseum. Okay? Day with the, I'm not, now, I always stop them. Okay, yeah, I agree with you. God is beyond time. Time does not affect God at all. He's outside of the dimension of time. But let me ask you this. Who was the Bible written to? People, right? Are we beyond time? No. God's writing to people. He's writing so people can understand. So he gives time references. Because we know time references. All right? He's not writing the Bible to himself. He knows all this stuff. He's communicating to us. So we are not beyond time. So when he says quickly, we think in our time quickly. Hey, yeah, I know what that means. See, but they use verses like this to try to destroy. Well, the Lord is not bound by time. Well, we know he's not. But he said... He would return in that generation. Okay? We know what that means. We know what a generation is. Alright? The last hour would end when the destruction of the Jewish temple in the city. It was not the last hour of earth or the end of the world. He's talking about the last hour of the age of Judaism. Old covenant age. Everything that pointed to Christ, Christ was here. Guess what? That's all done. You don't need it anymore. It all pointed to Him. He's here. The disciples knew that the fall of the temple, the destruction of the city, meant the end of the Old Covenant age and the inauguration of a new age. The Christian age. The one in which we live. So when Matthew 24, 29, you know, talking about these things, modern commentators generally understood this and what follows as the end of the world. They read these things, okay, after the tribulation, let's see, the sun's going to be darkened. The sun's going out. Uh, the moon's not going to give its light. I didn't know the moon gave light. I thought it was just a reflector. Uh, the stars are going to fall from heaven. The powers of heaven are going to be shed. All this is going to happen. That's the end of the world, right? That's not what he's talking about at all. <laughs> if, listen, here's the problem again. If you're not familiar with the first three quarters of the Bible... Don't make up stuff for the last quarter. You read this language, you go, oh, I know what this means. Not if you don't know what, how they used it. Because this is used throughout the Tanakh. And unless you understand that, you're not understand this. This is common among the covenant prophets. This idea is clearly seen in many passages. He's not talking about the end of a world. He's talking about the end of a nation. Israel's lights went out <laughs> in AD 70. Okay? Let, let me show you this in just one example here in Isaiah 13. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. All right, in this chapter, God is talking about the judgment that's going to fall on Babylon. The word oracle is the Hebrew word Massah. It means an utterance of doom. In other words, God is prophesying, promising judgment is coming on Babylon. All right? Now, this is the introduction. And it sets the stage for this chapter. And you can't interpret this chapter outside of the oracle of Babylon. This is for Babylon. This is about Babylon. So don't take the language here and say, oh, it's for this over here. No, keep it in context. It's not an oracle against the universe or the world. It's one against Babylon. 
Wail for the day of Yahweh is near as destruction from the Almighty it will come. He says, Behold, the day of Yahweh comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. Now watch what he says. The stars of heaven, their constellations will not give the light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon shall not shed its light. Does that sound familiar? That's what we just read in Matthew. Okay, He's talking about Babylon. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophrah. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place and the wrath of Yahweh of hosts, the day of His fierce anger. Now remember, he's speaking about the destruction of Babylon. It sounds like worldwide destruction. But the terminology of a context can't be expanded beyond the scope of the subject under discussion. The spectrum of language can't go outside the land of Babylon. If you were a Babylonian and this happened, guess what? Your world is destroyed. The lights go out. Your world is over. If America was destroyed, we could say the world ended. Because our world did. Right? He's talking to Babylon. Isaiah 13, 70, Behold, I'm stirring up the maids against them. All this destruction, you think, man, it sounds so horrible. What's God going to do? Some cataclysmic, miraculous, send bolt, lightning bolts down, you know, just destroy them? No, he says, I'm going to send the Medes against you. They have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. And guess what? They're just going to come in there and they're just going to destroy everything. All right? This is a historical event that took place in 539 B.C. The Medes destroyed Babylon, and when they did, guess what? The Babylonian world came to an end. This destruction, we saw in verse 6, is said to be from the Almighty, but He used the Medes to accomplish His task. And the same thing happened in AD 70. God destroyed Jerusalem. Who did He use? The Romans. The Roman army came in and just destroyed it. This is the way the Bible discusses the fall of a nation. It's figurative language. God is not intended for us to take it literally. If we take this literally, guess what? The world ended in 539 B.C. and we're not really here. You get to Matthew 24, same exact language. This is the end of the world. Why wasn't it the end of the world for Isaiah back in Isaiah 13? Why wasn't it the end of the world for Babylon? Well, it was. It was for their world. And it is for the Jewish world. The latter days concerned the nation Israel. The very first mention of the last days, as we have seen, was through Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes. More importantly, Jacob was addressing his sons, or the tribes, in speaking of the evil that would befall them in the last days. Now the question is, how does this relate to the language of Yeshua and Peter speaking of the sun, moon, and stars? Remember Joseph's dream? Remember when he came and told his father and brothers? Well, he wasn't too bright, was he? I mean, to say this stuff to them. I mean, this is something you kind of keep to yourself, okay? You know, you don't tell them, but of course we know it needed to be put out. Genesis 37, 9 and 10. Then he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers. And he said, behold, I dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars. Wait a minute, he's got how many brothers? 11 brothers, yeah, okay. The 11 stars were bowing down to me. Cool. Now, when we read that, what do you think of? 
You think of Joseph's in Egypt and the brothers come and they all bow down before him. I'm thinking, wow, we see that. Okay, this is, we're reading into stuff. We're getting too far ahead of ourselves though, all right? They're bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him. And his father said to him, okay, because with the sun, moon, and star, they're going to bow down. And so his father rebukes him. What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I, your mother, and your brothers indeed come and bow down ourselves to the ground before you? Wait a minute. Now, Joseph didn't say, Dad, Dad, I'm not talking about you. I said the sun, moon, and stars. His father interprets this as me, your mother, and the 12, your, your 11 brothers. He saw that. They were the sun, moon, and stars respectively. Listen, they represented, get this, Jacob, his sons, they represented the whole foundation of the Jewish nation. When Yeshua therefore spoke of the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling, he was referring to complete destruction of the Jewish state. In the prophetic language, great commotions and revolutions upon the earth are often represented by commotions and changes in the heavens. None of these things literally took place. Okay? But that city was destroyed. I got a long quote here by Sir Isaac Newton that I'm going to skip through because you, you can read it in the notes if you want it. Um, it just it's too long. I got I'm running out of time here. Now the writer of Hebrews clearly says that they were in the last days. He began his discourse comparing the fading old covenant with the everlasting new covenant. Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but in the last days he's spoken to us by his son. So Yeshua speaking in the last days. What last days? The last days of the old covenant age. Look at Hebrews 9.26. And then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice itself. When did Yeshua appear? He was born not at the beginning, but the end of the ages. To suppose that he meant that Yeshua's incarnation came near the end of the world would make this a false statement. The world's already lasted longer since the Incarnation than the whole duration of the Mosaic economy, from Exodus to the destruction of the Temple. Yeshua was manifest at the end of the Jewish age. Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter 1.20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So Yeshua came during the last days of the age that was the Old Covenant age, the Jewish age, it came to an end with the destruction. Now certainly the writers of the New Testament were very aware of those passages that we studied involving the last days of Judah and Jerusalem. Therefore, I think it's safe and logical to say that the New Testament writers believed that they were in the last days. The last days of, not the world, but the Jewish age. They understood two ages, as MacArthur said. This age, which was this age to them, and the age to come, which is the age we live in. Paul believed they were living in the end of the Jewish age. Look what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they are written down for our instructions on whom the end of the ages have come. Paul says the end of the ages has come upon us, people. Them, first century saints. James taught the same thing. James says here, in the last days, you have he laid treasure in the last days. This is it, he says. We're, we're at the end. Lazarus takes it even further in our text, and he says, it's the last hour, okay? 
the last hour of the Jewish age. There's many other passages that could be used to support the fact that the first century believers, and particularly the apostles, believed they were in the end of the Jewish age, the last days of the Jewish age. The writer of Hebrews says in 1025, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The day of the end. Now i got a long quote by Pink here that I'm going to skip. Like I said, it'll be in the notes if you want it. A quote by John Brown. All right, The approaching day was the same day that would come in a little while, according to the writer of Hebrews. Look what Hebrews says. This is another verse that I'm like, how do people miss this? He says, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Now, the Greek here is really expressive and emphatic. The author used a word which signifies a little while, and then for further emphasis he added a particle meaning very, and this he still further intensifies by repeating it. Thus, literally rendered, this clause reads like this, for yet a very, very little while, and he that shall come will come. Now, in a very, very little while, that could mean 2,000 years, right? It's hard to understand that. It really is. Okay? So, well, the day of the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years, that, right? Come on. He's writing to people, and he's not writing this to the Lord. The end was getting near. It was the last hour, and John referred to the last hour of the Old Covenant age. Jerusalem, the temple, the nation would be destroyed during that first generation of Christianity. For 40 years, Christians and the Old Covenant believers lived together. Then God destroyed it and said, the Old Covenant's done, we're moving on with the new. And contrary to popular opinion, we're not living in the last days. We are in the first days of the New Covenant age. And I say first days because this is an everlasting covenant. It doesn't have an age. And end. It's eternal. Look what he says, Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Yeshua, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. An eternal covenant has no last days. It doesn't end, so it doesn't have last days. We're living in the first days of the eternal age. And missing these important time statements causes people to misapply by nearly 2,000 years many verses of the Bible. John's last hour is not a 2,000-year hour. He's telling us the time is short. And it's, it's, he proves that it's short by saying there's Antichrist already. All right? Really close. And so this urgent warning, and people say, ah, it's 2,000 years. You know? John, the, the Catholic scholar Brown was right in the, the sense they missed the urgency. He was wrong in the sense that, you know, John was mistaken. The last hour of the Jewish age, the Old Covenant age, it became obsolete and it passed away in AD 70. The judgment and destruction of Jerusalem, that's it. The Jews are done. The nation's done. We're now in the New Covenant age. God dwells with His people as He promised. And we have face-to-face -face fellowship with Him. We're not waiting for something, people. We have it. And it's, to me, it's very, very sad for people hoping for what they already have. Instead of enjoying what they have, they hope for it. I'd rather enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Father, I don't understand how something that seems so clear, so simple to me, is so confusing to so many people. But I pray, Father, You'd give us the hearts of Bereans. 
I pray people wouldn't accept what I say or reject what I say, but they would study it for themselves to see if these things are so. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Gary. Um, it's just, it's funny. I've never been accused of being a thinker. And I can't, thanks to you, I can't even remember what I thought about the second coming centuries ago. 22 years ago. Yeah. Um, is that all? It's like longer. <laughs> um, but from, it's half a generation. From my perspective, today, I mean, about two and, and whatever, 40 years is a long time, you know? Right. That, so, you know, so it's hard to imagine being 2000, the last hour. Yeah. It just seems counterintuitive for John to say last hour, meaning a couple thousand years. Well, it's the Holy Spirit has enlightened and chooses who will see and who won't see, I guess. Anthony? So, so it's, you think about it. so this, is it? Uh, it might sound, but is it his will that why don't I mean you should have Anthony? Finish one sentence. <laughs> why, why can't why can't people see it the way you see it and teach us how to see it? Well, I, I mean, can, I can answer that. You know. Go ahead, Dora. <laughs> because they're not reading the word, and then on top of it, they're going to yeah. places of worship where they're not hearing the mm. truth. They're being fed. I mean, even, but even as leaders or people who's teaching, why they, this is what I meant for them, why they, can, why they can't see they it teach the truth. like that. Well, I, again, I think Dora's right there. Here's the problem we have. Yeah. You go up to your average person and try to talk to them about eschatology, and they'll say, Esca who? What? What are you talking about? Well, the end times. Oh, yeah, the Lord's coming in the end times. That's all they know. You take them back to Isaiah 13, they're like, what Isaiah, what's that? They don't even know anything about the Old Testament. See, the problem is people today, average Christians, don't read their Bible enough to even know how to have a conversation with you. They don't know, and it's serious, and that's sad, but they really don't, and I was there. Okay, I taught dispensationalism. I didn't like it even when I taught it. I thought, this is kind of screwy. I look at the reference verses they use, and I'm like, how'd they get that out of that verse? I don't know. But it just when you start seeing the whole picture, it just makes sense. You understand there's two Israels, okay? There's the true Israel of God, and there's the, the nation, and you know, God talked about destruction of the nation, but these promises go to the true new Israel, who are his people of faith, and it just all fits together. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, God has to open your eyes, brother. If God doesn't open your eyes, you're not going to see it. I don't care what happens. But yeah, you have to have a desire to search, to dig. And, you know, I think the majority of the church might not even be Christians, okay? They're just, they're churchgoers. They're churchianity. And I don't say that mean, but I mean, you talk to most average church-going people, they don't have really much desire or passion for the Lord or Christ or things of God at all. It's like, we go to church, I mean, don't expect anything more from us than that. This is not about attending a service. You know, Christianity is about a lifestyle, live for God and His glory. And if you have been born again, why would you not want to know everything about who you are and who your Father is and fulfill it in your life?
beginning, you know, if I wasn't a preterist, I, that would seal it because when you expounded on, there was no, in the end times, there was no Gentiles. It was only Israelites. So that's in the end times like, we're coming, we're about Israel, Israel's end times. And that's where they miss it because they think end times are end times of the world. And that's due to faulty translations. You know, the King James puts world in there instead of age. And, you know, when I think of world, that's what I think of. But if they would have put age in there, I own is the word, Greek word. If they had put age, it, you know, a lot of people would have caught on, I think, quicker. But, you know, I'll tell you what, people, you share this with people, they're either going to punch you or they're going to kiss you, you know. They either, and even some people who, you know, like it. I've shared this, you know, I had a group of teens my nephew brought to Starbucks. You know, you got to teach these guys. I'm like, all right, let's go. Well, you know, and these kids are all excited, you know, and Matthew's all, and I tried to calm him down. Listen, don't get too excited. Wait till they take this back to their pastors and then see what happens. Sure enough, they squelched it real quick, okay? No, no, that's not true, and that was kind of the end of that, but hey, it was planted, you know. What did they do with it? I don't know, but it's there. Gary? Not to contradict you, but they could have priests today to conduct the sacrifice and all that, but not biblical priests. They would suffer the consequences, I guess. The Bible so makes you, that very clear. You cannot be a priest without genealogical records. So You've got to see your, line, your lineage so you can be a priest. What should they do in the synagogue? Just like the church service. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, that's the thing. Okay, go to biblical Judaism and look at what God developed. Here's what you're supposed to do. Look what they do today. Okay? Every morning, animals were to be sacrificed. Every evening, animals were to be sacrificed. I mean, there were so many things they had to go. They don't do any of that. They celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. They celebrate Pentecost. Not doesn't resemble anything to what the Bible says. They just kind of retweaked everything and said, we'll just keep going. God shut us down. They've never sacrificed since AD 70, which was the main issue with Judaism, was sacrifice, pointing to Christ. They've never sacrificed since, but they still call it Judaism, and they go on doing the little things, you know? Reading from the Bible and doing different things that don't resemble what was there. And you just ask them, why is it you guys quit sacrificing? I and mean, God makes that real clear. That's part of Judaism. Yeah, you got your hand up back there, young lady? Yeah. 